Welcome to Moving the Needle, where we highlight innovators doing needle-moving to create generational wealth and strengthen America's inclusive competitiveness. We're excited to bring you this episode, and we couldn't do it without the support of our sponsors. Live Oak Bank is on a mission to be America's small business bank and has the privilege of helping thousands of passionate, driven entrepreneurs turn their dreams into reality. These small business owners aren't in it for the fortune or the fame. They're in it to make a difference, just like Live Oak. As the top SBA 7A lender in the nation, Live Oak works tirelessly to treat every customer like they are the only customer. Going above and beyond is simply how Live Oak operates. They strive to deliver an experience different than what you typically expect from a bank. Their customers remain at the center of everything. You can learn more at liveoakbank.com. All right, let's get to the show. And then what we really try to do is bring people together on a monthly basis, figure out how can we foster the collaboration among these ecosystem builders and what can we be doing from the SBA point of view to support that effort. Welcome to Moving the Needle, a fresh new podcast that explores how social innovators and problem solvers are doing transformative work in cities and rural communities to create pathways for generational wealth creation. This is Jonathan Hollifield. And I'm Christopher Gergen. As your co-hosts, we're here to lift up solutions that are giving us hope and can light the way for policymakers, community leaders, philanthropists, private investors, and engaged citizens who care about equity and economic impact. Jonathan, as fellow entrepreneurs, we know that when you're running a small business, you'll take all the resources you can get, including access to capital. But many founders have no idea where to begin to look for funding and wouldn't even think to look at the federal government. Which brings us to our guest today, Jennifer Shee, Director of Ecosystem Development at the United States Small Business Administration. Jennifer is the first person to hold that position at the SBA. In her LinkedIn profile, her headline really says it all. She's a neuroscientist by training, entrepreneur in spirit, an educator, at heart. Her path to the SBA started when she was getting her PhD at Stanford. They studied how the brain develops. And during that time, I got exposed to science policy. I had no idea what policy was. And I was really, I'm really not into politics. And so somebody told me about this fellowship in Washington, DC. I was like, I don't know. I really don't want to go to DC, but it was a a short fellowship. It was at the National Academy of Sciences. And so that sort of just introduced me to this whole other world. You know, I got into science because I wanted to make an impact. I wanted to have a big impact on on the world, a good positive one. And I just didn't even realize that policy was a thing. But at the same time that I was doing that fellowship, I was also working for a couple of startups and somebody came and talked about the SBIR, Small Business Innovation Research Program, America's Seed Fund. I had no idea that the government gave money to startups. I was like, oh my gosh, we have to apply for this. America's Seed Fund, the Small Business Innovation Research Program, now distributes over $200 million a year to 400 startups across the United States. You know, Jonathan, it was founded 40 years ago in 1982 with four goals in mind. One, stimulate tech innovation between the federal government and small businesses. Two, increase private sector commercialization that comes from federal R&D. Three, foster collaboration and cooperation between small businesses and research institutions. And I'll let Jennifer explain the fourth. One of these like four key goals and missions of the programs when it was started was to foster and encourage the participation in innovation and entrepreneurship 
by people who had traditionally been kept out, by women, socially or economically disadvantaged people. And, you know, I, these are still the same kind of core goals of the program. And, and you might even think about how some of it is, uh, can be conflicting in terms of when you're trying to set policy for a program that is this broad. So it's $4 billion a year. Any, any federal agency that funds research and development has to reserve a portion of their funding to go to small businesses to accomplish these goals. It's also just one piece of the broader national innovation ecosystem, for lack of a better word. But it's just, you know, back in the early 80s, late 70s, there was really this thinking about how do we make sure that we're moving forward together? How do we make use of, you know, from World War II, endless frontier, Vannevar Bush days of thinking about really the federal government's role in stimulating fundamental research? How do we make use of that for international competitiveness? Mm. And, and really, you know, when I think about the goals of uh, the Small Business Innovation Research Program, it's, it gets back down to also really stimulating innovation. And stimulating innovation is around also getting this influx of all the amazing ideas and perspectives and people to really advance something new, you know, like building off of these different things. So I guess I didn't finish telling you like the, the rest of my, how did I end up in SBA? You know, okay, NIH sort of makes sense in some ways, right? I, was, I did a PhD in the biomedical sciences in the National Cancer Institute. So that, that was kind of my connection back to companies. Um, but then I, I stayed within NIH, but I worked for the Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute. And there, I think I got more uh, of a taste even of policy development. Because there, when I was at the Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, I was overseeing and coordinating across the different functional stakeholders that work with the small businesses from the agency's point of view. So we had a heart division and a lung division and a blood division, and they were all the scientific experts. And they were also still the program managers that, you know, individually one-to-one -one would speak with the companies about their innovations in those scientific and technical areas. But we also had review officers, we had the grants management folks, and we also did contracts. And so it was trying to get everybody on the same page to work for the entrepreneurs who were coming to us, that, that's where I got that taste of a kind of a higher level policy coordinating role. And then ultimately at the Small Business Administration. So SBA does not actually have R&D funding. We do not fund any companies through the SBIR and STTR programs, but we serve a coordinating and empowering role for those federal agencies that do fund the small businesses. And so what I saw when I was at, oh, and, that, and please feel free to interrupt me anytime. Well, I, I, was, I was struck a little bit, Jennifer, just to go back to the idea of, I mean, the key takeaway for me is the important partnership and relationship between the small business community and government to drive innovation. Right. At the end of the day, government, to Jonathan's earlier point, the enabling entities saying, you know what, we want to try to outsource a lot of the innovation because the innovation is going to come from all different corners and quarters of the, of the country. And we want to try to encourage that and then foster it and then, and then scale it. So in that context, what do you feel like are some of the gating factors that are that are holding some people back because at the end of the day you talk about this idea of it's all about competitiveness like the more that we're able to stimulate this innovation the better but to jonathan's you know uh wheelhouse of inclusive competitiveness you know we end up ultimately leaving a lot of our competitiveness on the sidelines yeah so how do we how do we get to that 
it's something that I'm going to go back to my initial days at the Heart, Lung and Blood Institute. And that actually kind of dovetails with why I moved to the Small Business Administration. And when you're working day to day to make sure, you know, you get the money out the door and there's a, there are so many different pieces in being a, a program manager who's responsible for funding <laughs> and, and getting uh, answers in, out there. And at the Small Business Administration, which again serves this coordinating and policy role across the federal agencies and really serving the small businesses themselves and the entrepreneurs and potential entrepreneurs, it was about, you know, when I first started in 2011, that's what we were focused on was, okay, we feel like we're doing okay on a lot of those other goals uh, for SBIR. We're, we're, we are stimulating innovation. We're meeting federal research and development needs. We're increasing public sector commercial or private sector commercialization. But how are we doing on engaging the entire American population, right? Like who is not participating and um, at NIH, you know, we did, we dive, we dove into the data to look at, okay, what are we, what are we getting? And, and I'll give you some high level stats now because things have not actually changed, unfortunately, that much over the last 10 years or so. But across the 11 federal agencies that participate, so this is uh, in America's seed fund, this is $4 billion dollars. $4 billion a year, 11 federal departments really that fund these. This is 4,000 companies each year that get funded. Applications really only come in from about, it's kind of in the, like over the last few years, 13 to 15% of women-owned small businesses. And that's actually also true for NIH. And I pick on NIH because I was there and uh, the PhD population of biomedical scientists is greater than 50%. But the women-owned small businesses that were submitting proposals to the NIH was only at the 13 to 15%, kind of generally on the 12%. And we were, were just not able, at, when we were at the NIH as program managers, able to figure out, okay, wh what could we be doing? And so we were trying to coordinate across the agencies within the NIH, all the different um, institutes and centers. And so at SBA, I was offered, okay, this is something you get to focus on. How can we support all the agencies, not just one department, but all the agencies and figuring out how we can increase the diversity of the population of companies that are submitting to this program. Is it a lack of awareness? Is it a lack of there's, there's submissions, but the proposals are not being reviewed well? So is there a gap sort of in the application to award stage? And then, you know, kind of going beyond. I'm sorry, I have some long-winded answers, I know. <laughs> but it's, it, it, it's, it's insightful. And may I offer for your consideration, uh, one of the challenges is narrative. Non-empirical, squishy narrative. And this notion of STEM education has become a national imperative in the last 20 years. Seldom do we connect STEM education with job-creating entrepreneurship at the early stage. It's STEM to get a good job. It's not STEM to create a good job. And perhaps one of the agencies, and I'm not sure how engaged you have been, or SBA has been with the Department of Education, but that could be a place to embed earlier in the pipeline development process these dual expectations of STEM to both get a job and as a unique uh, uh, asset to have that aligns with the competitiveness priorities of the U.S. 
Uh, Jonathan, I'm glad you brought this up. And, and it's something I think we had probably discussed quite a bit when we knew each other, <laughs> when I was, I was doing that um, temporary assignment over at the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. And that is all where I got the pleasure of getting to meet Jonathan, where we, we started putting our heads together around, you know, how do we pull across the entire federal ecosystem? And, and that's also where I think I really started to also kind of merge these ideas around um, the people and STEM training and workforce development, economic development, and also getting products to market. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. so there are all these different factors and that kind of gets back to your ecosystem question, Christopher. I know I still haven't gotten there yet, but that's one of the things around uh, America's Seed Fund in particular and these very specific types of companies that are funded through that program is that it, there's that intersection of disparities and underrepresentation in STEM education and disparities and underrepresentation in who starts businesses and who has access to the resources and know-how and knowledge and advising to actually start a business and what some of those barriers, you know, that that come and, and kind of intersect here. And so how do we think differently also about um, who we do outreach to and with? And one of the things, one of the programs actually that I'm, I would say it's like one of the things that I'm kind of proud about having worked on, but also at the same time, uh, look back at how long it's taken to come to fruition <laughs> is we start, there were these diversity supplements that uh, at the NIH. So you could get funding for an NIH grant, any kind of grant, to bring in uh, students, trainees, even early faculty members onto a research project that was funded by NIH to increase the diversity of the biomedical research workforce. And this was also available to SBIR and STTR awardees. And so we looked into our people, do people know about it? Are they using it? Because this was a way to also bring in students to expose them to the idea that, you know, there are multiple tracks of success if you do go into STEM, if you do research, if you do science and engineering. It's not just being cloistered away at a research laboratory in a university. There's a great place for that, but there's there are different options. And so this diversity supplement program, uh, we did uh, some requests for information, did some customer discovery ourselves to understand how to make, make it easier for small businesses in the program to make use of it. And so that is a program that is active currently at the NIH. There are SBIR, STTR specific diversity supplements. The Department of Energy also has a similar program. So any phase two SBIR or STTR awardee from the Department of Energy can actually hire a student, bring them on to their research project to show them how what it might be like to start a company, to work in a small business that's doing research and development. And the National Science Foundation also has these programs. So it sounds like a couple of good takeaways just on that one is that one, if you are a company that gets an SBIR, STTR, and you are within a diversity category run by a person of color, run by uh, a woman, woman-led, you can apply for these diversity supplements and be able to get additional talent onto your team. And that you... You don't actually have to be diverse yourself in terms oh, of the okay. company. And I think that is one of the misconceptions, actually. Like, this is for any of the companies that have been funded by the awardee, uh, sorry, by the awarding agency. All right, we're eradicating, eradicating this misconception. So yeah. if anybody gets an SBIR or STTR, they can apply for these diversity supplements and bring on this talent. And that's an important piece. Then the other important piece sounds like if you are interested in working for a startup company, 
uh, and you are a person of color or a woman, you can get access to these, uh, to these supplements. So that's, that's a great takeaway. Let's take a break. Today's episode is brought to you by Sherm. Our partners at Sherm, the Society for Human Resource Management, have created better workplaces by supporting diversity, equity, and inclusion throughout the world of work and society. It's why they developed the Together Forward at Work initiative to drive racial inequity out of the workplace. It's why Sherm made a capital commitment to support minority-owned business enterprises. And it's why they are partnering with us at Moving the Needle to support the call for inclusive economic development opportunities. Together, we can help workers realize their full potential in their work and in every aspect of their lives. So you can learn more at Sherm.org. That's S-H-R-M.org. Okay, back to the show. Let's get back to moving the needle. I want to come back to the ecosystem piece, which is that you talk about the federal ecosystem. And um, as you well know, and now the SBA is starting to really lean into this, there's also the, the community ecosystem, right? So if we're really thinking about this idea of building a pipeline of diverse companies that are driving innovation and the sciences and technology. Not only is it the talent pipeline that we talked about earlier, but it's also, to your point, getting access to the resources and relationships necessary to be able to put that business plan into action, be able to get the appropriate access to capital, to be able to ground that within the community of talent. And that is so often place-based. You know, you're starting a company, for example, and whatever it may be, Philadelphia or Durham, North Carolina, where I'm based or, you know, out in San Antonio, um, that local ecosystem is really important. And so uh, I know the SBA has a community navigator grant that it, uh, that it recently launched. Where are there other efforts underway to really try to foster that local ecosystem to build that pipeline of companies out? Yeah, thanks for that question. So the Office of Investment and Innovation within SBA, right? So SBA is serving all small businesses across the country, uh, regardless of industry level, location, who is doing it. But SBA is the only cabinet level federal agency that's fully dedicated to serving the 32.5 million small businesses that exist today. And our Office of Investment and Innovation, where I where I sit, is particularly focused on the high growth small business community and creating pathways and access to financial capital, including the R&D funds through America's Seed Fund, to develop commercially viable products, right? And our work is really focused on that public-private partnership that, re- that helps this, these high growth small businesses going from idea to IPO. And actually in our most recent SBA strategic plan, our office is specifically focused on building a thriving national innovation ecosystem that can promote investments in all small business communities. And where we serve, so I mentioned, you know, SBA serves in this role for the America Seed Fund in coordinating across federal agencies. The other really key piece that we look at and and where we focus here within, for example, the SBIR and STTR programs is how do we help getting more individuals aware of the program and into the program? And we know that we are not the people on the ground who do that. We work through these partnerships with resource partners for the America Seed Fund, SBIR and STTR programs. We have a federal and state technology partnerships program where we currently fund 33 organizations in 33, uh, well, 32 states and Puerto Rico to serve specifically entrepreneurs and helping them navigate that SBIR and STTR process. We also, oh, time out. Yes, okay. I, I have to pick up there because you're talking about 
federal government, let's say, at the bottom and working with local partners to reach ultimately diverse STEM and other entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. That set of 33 organizations, are you getting the kind of performance from them from an inclusion Mm -hmm. perspective that we need? Or are there gaps between those organizations and the communities within their states that represent those populations? Yeah, it definitely varies. So one of the things in terms of the geographic focus for FAST is also around ensuring that we reach rural communities across each of these states. And I will say, you know, it's not a lot of money that gets provided to each of these organizations and then they have to serve an entire state. Um, I will highlight, you know, for example, New Mexico, our awardee in New Mexico does, because their state is mostly rural, they, before the pandemic even, had done a lot of virtual programming to make sure that they were reaching people all over. And so actually one of the things I would like to focus on actually here is around that innovation ecosystem network, because I think we're, you know, we're, we've got a partnership here with these individual organizations at each of the states and they are doing the best they can. It's similar to when we were working at an agency. It's like the reach is going to be limited in terms of the bandwidth and the people. And so really believe in the network effect, sharing best practices across each other and with each other, figuring out ways to partner. And so last fall, we actually had a specific prize competition. So this is the other program that we fund is the Growth Accelerator Fund competition, which are, unlike FAST, which are cooperative agreements, you know, the organizations are going to have to go through the receiving federal funding, official forms and grants. The Growth Accelerator Fund competition is a way to support these local community builders with $50,000 prizes, low barrier to entry in terms of it's a pitch deck and a video. And we tried a new thing called SBIR Catalyst, which was really about forming partnerships. So forming partnerships among these local community builders. And so we have a few that are focused specifically on supporting women in a variety of areas. We have, a, we have eight SBIR Catalyst awardees and they received, uh, I believe, $150,000, again, as a prize. So that was low barrier for the organizations. And there's a variety of different models, right, and ways. And then what we really try to do is bring people together on a monthly basis, figure out how can we foster the collaboration among these ecosystem builders and what can we be doing from the SBA point of view to support that effort. So Jennifer, I want to pick up on that because I love all of this, right? Uh, And because I think it's really important for people to understand and, and know what the various opportunities are that are out there. But it still feels like small potatoes against the challenge, I must say, right? So you basically just say you've got, you know, you got eight of these awardees, you know, you got, you got thousands of communities. Um, And we do have 84, 84 84 growth growth accelerators. All right, fair (laughs) enough. But I would still say that the the numerator denominator on that is not strong uh, in terms of the need to Mm -hmm. um, what's going in. So do you feel like these are now being piloted and it's an opportunity to be able to scale those? And do you feel like SBA uh, and the federal government writ large is is increasingly appreciating the role and need of these ecosystem builders and developers? Because I feel like, at least from the vantage point of Jonathan and me, who spent a lot of time in this work of local ecosystem development, I feel like this is an emerging and critical field but yet still dramatically undercapitalized and underinvested in. So what do you see is what, like, if you were to play this out, and I know politics and policy always come hand in hand. And so I, I want to put that on the table and recognize this, and we don't want to be Pollyannish about it all. But do you see more investment going into local ecosystem development and local community builders? Yes, I do. And um, yeah, and I'm trying to think about sort of the timelines of like, how quickly or not quickly things have been happening. 
but I do think that there has been a big mind shift and, and it's a, it, I can see it right across the entire Biden-Harris administration. I think that there's, um, at each of the different agencies, there's this big effort to really also be customer centric. And when we think about customer centricity, <laughs> right, it's who are the citizens of America? Who are we trying to serve? And how do we think about that in, in that frame of view rather than thinking about it always as, well, I'm this federal agency and I have this mission. <laughs> and so, uh, and even within a federal agency, right? Like people don't talk to each other. So there are a few, uh, a few initiatives and I think it's like, it's probably small enough. It's small enough to be manageable, but it's big enough to be impactful, I think, which is, let's say, and I think about it in the frame of this, uh, there's a National Science and Technology Council uh, that is made up of the leaders of the science and technology agencies that's run by the Office of Science and Technology Policy from the White House. And so this is a big interagency body. There is and has been a lab to market interagency group that has focused on how do we support that $150 billion investment in research and development that happens every year from the federal agencies, how are we actually supporting the, that transition and translation out? And that's where it starts to intersect with the entrepreneurship realm and the economic development realm. And I think that there wasn't as much, you know, I think that's why there's, it's interesting that the America's seed fund policy side is sits within the small business administration rather than a science funding agency, to be thinking about our customers who are the small businesses, the entrepreneurs, the innovators. And then we work more closely, right, with the economic development focused agencies. So our resource partners also get funding from the Department of Commerce, from the Economic Development Administration. And there have been um, you know, certainly well-known, really big infusions of funding there to be thinking about uh, how to support local communities. You're talking about like build back better regional challenge and things like that. Yeah, right. Um, you know the opportunity to. Well, yeah, you know, you never want to waste a crisis <laughs> as as an opportunity to really rethink things, and I think the pandemic was such a big opportunity to really rethink. How are we structured and how are we doing things? And how can we also think about the ecosystem builder community as our customers as well? Right. And so we've been listening. Mm -hmm. And here's a here's a gap mm -hmm. that potentially government might incent and provide investment in the target communities, underestimated humans, black. Latinx, rural, Latino rather, rural, et cetera, women, et cetera. These communities are inundated, saturated with direct service providers. There's almost no infrastructure that can connect up to the kinds of opportunities that you are presenting and your statewide partners are presenting. The absence of the intermediary function that works so well across our innovation ecosystems, our regionally based ecosystems, where organizations have responsibility for creating local conditions. They go to their city hall, they go to their state capital, they work with Washington, D.C., and everything in between to ensure their ecosystem is healthy and vibrant. In underestimated communities, there are no functions like that. So the inability of these communities to connect up to these opportunities is almost non-existent. And if we can't close that gap, Jennifer, it's going to continue. And so the ecosystem builders are not your customary ecosystem builders. Yeah. They're new ecosystem builders. Yeah. And... Ecosystem builders are also typically entrepreneurs who are under-resourced and also trying to do many different 
wear many different hats and do many different things all at once. Um, but they are entrepreneurs that serve entrepreneurs and their communities. Right. Yeah, but let me, let me, let's, let me stretch that, that a bit. Okay. Yeah, I concur and add, mm -hmm. we have invested heavily into the uh, uh, formation of regional ecosystems and supporting the regional ecosystem anchoring and connecting functions. So I'm not sure it's fair to just say ecosystem builders are entrepreneurs. They certainly are. Maybe but not that's all. that's not all. Right. That's not all. And, and not all of them. Right. So this is, I think, also gets to Christopher's point around, say, community navigators. So that was also thinking about, okay, who are the trusted partners in these underestimated communities that can help do the connecting with these more established organizations who have historically been funded. They have the knowledge of working within the federal government. And that's why I kind of point to the, the growth accelerator fund competition in a sense, because, you know, there's, it's also thinking about where the gaps within the initiatives that can support ecosystem builders and who gives those first chances to people who have not been able to they, they haven't had the chance to show what they can do. And there's that concern, too, of like, what about the, you know, the, the ability to fail? So if we go back to entrepreneurs, like what what is failure for an ecosystem builder and what what are we expecting from them? And how will there ever be that chance to show that you can build and build and learn from things that may not have gone the way that you intended. And that threshold or that tolerance for underestimated communities is a lot lower than it is for the um, um, regional ecosystem builders. Got to get that up a bit. Christopher, please. Yeah, I was just thinking, I was thinking just to build on that, it feels like, you know, what we're talking about here is scaffolding, right? So at the end of the day, what we want is we want a much more robust pipeline of entrepreneurs and high, you know, high growth, high impact, small business owners coming out of underestimated communities and being able to get to a place where they are then qualified and ready, sort of investment ready, contract ready for big SBIR, STTR grants. And it requires that kind of scaffolding, right? It requires the local trusted navigator. It requires the a, a coordinated entrepreneurial support network. It requires the intermediary that you were talking about, Jonathan, uh, to be able to help coordinate that ESO network and get it plugged into some of the you know state and national resources that are there. I mean, it really is all of these pieces of the ecosystem that are so critical. And Jennifer, I'm thrilled you know, that we're getting into this conversation about investing in that scaffolding because when this was first created, it was sort of like build it and they will come, right? Let's raise the flag. Let's be able to put some funds out there and then let's hope that, you know, we're going to get the kind of representation that we're, that we're, that we're looking for. And as you pointed out earlier, the data just doesn't bear that out. And it requires a level of intentional investment. And my hope is that more investment, right? That we're going to see more of it because this kind of scaffolding investment, I think, will start to bear fruit in that regard. So along those lines, I'm curious, you know, even going back to the conversations that you had with Jonathan in the White House, both on the STTR piece and on the intermediary piece, the role of HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities, because they strike me as a really critical piece of this puzzle. Um, and a lot of, and I don't know, Jonathan, you may know the data on this, but how many HBCUs are actually R1 institutions? I think it's very few. None. Yeah, no no R1s, but there are a few there, R2s. And, and there are emerging R2s, R2s, right? So I know that uh, I've been doing some work with Winston-Salem State, for example. They've just become an R2, Research 2 University. How do we get more HBCUs to a place where they are R1 and they're able to get both the technology transfer piece done and because they play such a critical role in the local ecosystem to be able to help you know, be that trusted resource and be a catalyst in the community. How can we 
really invest and think more about the role that HBCUs can play in this ecosystem. Yeah, and this is also definitely something that Jonathan and I were <laughs> working on together, as well as we're continuing to work on this effort here from the SBA side of, as well, because we're, we, we've convened a working group across the SBIR funding agencies to, you know, also think about, right, HBCUs are overtasked. The faculty members are, are overtasked in terms of teaching duties. You know, how are they supposed to be able to focus on research if they also have so many teaching duties? There's not necessarily a, a specific person whose job it is at that institution to solely focus on all of the different partnerships that can happen, whether it's with small businesses that are looking to transition or help, you know, license some of the technology from the HBCU or kind of broader work around the, the educational piece. And so I will say, like, I love, so scaffolding and infrastructure. Um, that's, that's one of the things we're really focused on building out here is, uh, the SBA innovation ecosystem network. Definitely welcome all HBCUs to participate. And we actually had a strategic alliance uh, with the MSI STEM R&D Consortium, which was uh, MSRDC, which represents a number of MSIs uh, across the country that do R&D to try to reach more. But we're trying to build that network to bring those who currently have that knowledge together with those who may not and figure out how we can share infrastructure as well as, uh, from our point of view, make sure that we're providing kind of tools and materials that will help those who are new to America's Seed Fund, for example, and haven't even talked about the, the small business investment company side of things. But, you know, there, there are a lot, there's a lot of space and opportunity here and I do think we're kind of just at the beginning. Uh, you know, my position's actually as director of ecosystem development is uh, just a couple months old at this point. But but it's definitely that's the direction that we're going. And how do we make use of existing infrastructure and our partners out there? There's you know such value and um, and also an interest and willingness to help support all of the ecosystem builder partners, you know, it's not competitive internally. <laughs> right. Let me build and connect uh, your comments and Christopher's question. Let me submit this. As lofty a goal, laudable goal, as R1 is, what I submit is more important is recognition of the scale and capacity of HBCU. When you look at the average size of a Black-owned or minority-owned small business, and the fact that, uh, let's say, Black-owned businesses, you know, 2.6 million and 14,000 have revenue over a million dollars. 2.5 million don't have employees. So if potentially, and you know I, ran a, I made a run at this when I was in the last administration, can we carve out an exception and designate these 100 entities because of the unique history, unique need, all of the unique things that they are, and treat them like small businesses. 100, you will add 100 entities to the definition of small business. Open up the whole aperture of SBA opportunity and recognize the scale that these don't no few black owned businesses have the intellectual scale of an HBCU staff or, or faculty rather, or the budgetary capacity. And certainly there are pressures on those budgets, but the scale of in, in that these entities represent really create a unique opportunity for some unique targeted funding to get that exponential impact that complements R1 but you don't have to be an R1 to make this impact. It's definitely beyond my policy scope, but <laughs> well, I will say, that I, well, and I will say <laughs> um, this year, the women's business centers mm -hmm. have added a number of HBCUs 
one, they've reached, created women's business centers in every state now. And there are at least, and I'm going to forget the number, but so I'm just going to say that there has definitely been a large increase that are specifically Absolutely. located at HBCUs and other minority serving institutions. But I definitely agree on the point of, you know, I don't, I, when you mention Christopher, R1 institutions, like one of the thoughts that first popped into my mind was like, yeah, but who created that metric? Right. And is that metric really the one that we need to focus on when it comes to STEM or R&D innovation? I don't think it is like I, it's helpful to know, like, how much research and development activity is happening. But I would say that it's not necessarily an indicator of the value of the innovation that's coming out and the research that's coming out from an institution. Yeah, I, I, I totally understand that. I mean, it is correlated, right? The more that you're able to get research dollars in, the more innovation and research and yeah. development you have coming out. Coming and it, out. it then gives you an opportunity to do more on the transfer side and then more on the community engagement side. So, Jennifer, we're running out of time, unfortunately, because this conversation could just go. I love, I love this conversation. I'm having so much fun with it. If you were to look into sort of a crystal ball over the course of the next 5, 10, 15 years, where would you see the world of ecosystem development going as it relates to the relationship between the federal government, the local communities, and the kind of output that you would hope it would produce? I am probably going to be very optimistic about it <laughs> and also uh, biased <laughs> in that, you know, I hope that the work that I'm doing will be moving the needle on this, uh, right, in that we've got better coordination internally within the federal government, that we're able to, you know, have that great network internally, that and that also works externally with our local ecosystem partners so that it's easier for our local ecosystem partners to get access to information, access to resources, funding to serve what they need to do. And that this is a, that it's a genuine partnership and collaboration, like that the collaborative infrastructure will exist and will grow and that it works, <laughs> the network works. And I think ecosystem building as a field, right, is is growing. So, without a doubt, uh, as we close out this podcast, a more lighthearted question and 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 some final words from a lighthearted sense. Um, are you a music fan? I love music. All right, give <laughs> us an example of a song or two that really fires you up, and then close us out with some words of wisdom from a change maker uh, in it every day and around the role of government in stimulating inclusion, innovation, and competitiveness. I know I asked a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, gosh, songs that really fire me up. One of the things that I remember, you know, in my 4 a.m. microscope sessions during grad school, uh, Missy Elliott, For My People. Like, I cannot right. hear it without dancing, <laughs> you know? Okay. Um, <laughs> Well done. And then words of wisdom. I really, I think it's really about just remembering and staying human. Mm. And just that, yeah, we've got these big lofty goals, but we have to remember that every one of us is still a human being <laughs> who is experiencing a lot. And we can still do this all together and we can support each other through it. So just kind of remembering our humanity. <laughs> so humans can actually do needle-moving shit. Maybe, if we work together, you know. <laughs> All right. That's right. Together we can do moving yeah. needle yes. shit. All right. <laughs> oh, thank it's you guys so much for inviting me. This was really fun, and I do feel like we could just talk for more, many more hours. <laughs> that was Jennifer Shee from the Small Business Administration. And you can find more on America's Seed Fund at seedfund.nsf.gov. Thanks so much for listening to Moving the Needle. If what you heard resonates with your mission, do something about it. Leaving a rating and review and sharing our show with your network is greatly appreciated. 
But what we really want is for you to get involved and find a way to move the needle in your community. Moving the Needle is hosted by me, Jonathan Hollifield, and Christopher Gergen. Editing and production by Earfluence. Music from Bart Matthews. And cover art from Devin Lewis Designs. We are also particularly grateful for our sponsors, Live Oak Bank and Society for Human Resource Management, or SHRM. We hope each episode introduces you to leading edge change makers, informs you about what's possible, and inspires you to action. So get out there and do some needle moving shit. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, we have a couple of books for you. The first one is written by me, Jonathan Hollifield, called The Future Economy and Inclusive Competitiveness, How Demographic Trends and Innovation Can Create Economic Prosperity for All Americans. In this book, I answer the question, can America win its economic future? The answer is an emphatic yes but I have concerns. Our nation is facing unprecedented global economic challenges. Although the economic narrative of the 20th century in many ways served America well, it will not, indeed it cannot, meet the needs of the 21st century. Today, we need all hands on deck, particularly those who have not competed well in our nation's best opportunities. Blacks, Latinos, rural humans, and others. In this book, I lay out an exciting way forward for America to inclusively compete to win the future. That's the future economy and inclusive competitiveness, which you can find on Amazon or movingtheneedle.solutions. And I can tell you that Jonathan's book really is a great read and provides meaningful insights into the issues we all care about. And while we're at it, you may also really enjoy a book that I, Christopher Gergen, co-authored with Greg Vanerick called Life Entrepreneurs. Life Entrepreneurs, as you may find out, is a clarion call for those who are interested in integrating their lives and work with purpose and passion. In the book, we tell stories of people who have infused their life and work with energy, impact, and fulfillment. In writing Life Entrepreneurs, we had deep conversations with 55 life entrepreneurs who have intentionally and creatively designed their lives to be able to create truly extraordinary impact in the world and deeply fulfilling lives for themselves. We had a great time writing this book, and its lessons have impacted every aspect of my own life and the thousands of readers who have checked it out. So you can check out Life Entrepreneurs for yourself on Amazon or movingtheneedle.solutions.